While this podcast will cover information about how to access therapy and other mental health services, it is not intended to be a substitute for said services. This podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. If you feel you are in need of mental health assistance, please seek out licensed professional care in your area. that type of therapy podcast. Welcome folks to Mental Health Quest, the therapist office and beyond. We're here to answer your questions about mental health, including how to access it, what it looks like, why should you do it? All of the above. And so much more. Yay! Hi, everybody! This is Charlene McPherson, LCSWC. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And I am Benjamin Tynes, Registered Psychological Associate. I am he, him, his. <laughs> and we have a special guest, Dr. Scarlett. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Dr. Janina Scarlett, and my pronouns are she, her, hers. Nice. We are so very excited to have Dr. Scarlett. She is a licensed clinical psychologist, author, TEDx speaker, and a full-time geek, like the two of us. She's <laughs> a Ukrainian-born refugee. She survived Chernobyl radiation and persecution, immigrated to the United States at the age of 12 with her family, and later, inspired by the X-Men, developed superhero therapy to help patients ending with anxiety, depression, and PTSD. Dr. Scarlett is the recipient of the Eleanor Roosevelt Human Rights Award by the United Nations Association for her work on superhero therapy. Her work has been featured on Yahoo, BBC, NPR, Sunday Times, CNN, CW, ABC, The New York Times, Forbes, and so many more outlets. She regularly consults on books and television shows, including HBO's Young Justice, which is a really amazing show that I love. <laughs> she was also portrayed as a comic book character in Gail Simon Simone's Seven Days graphic novel, which I thought was really cool that she's now immortalized in comic form. Yes. Uh, she currently works at the Center for Stress and Anxiety Management in San Diego. Thank you so much for, for being with us, Dr. Scarlett. Thank you for having me. This is such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah, we're kind of starstruck a little bit. We're like, yeah, this is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> For 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 those of uh, our listeners who don't know, Dr. Scarlett is probably the reason I got into the whole superhero therapy or geek therapy. She's my mentor, like my idol, and <laughs> she's my superhero <laughs> in this in this world. That is so sweet. Thank you. <laughs> well, now that we've made you thoroughly uncomfortable, <laughs> mission accomplished. <laughs> um. Let's move on to, so today, uh, actually, I got to go through the the beginning intro here. Uh, just wanted to thank all of our listeners. Um, obviously, if you enjoy our content, please rate and review us on iTunes or any other platform um, so that others can find us. Obviously, we have some amazing content um, on here. We want to make sure it gets to everybody that it can. Um, also, we're here to answer your questions about mental health. So please send any uh, questions that you have that we can cover on the podcast. Um, or if you'd like to reach out to us individually, uh, you can email us at mentalhealthquest1 at gmail.com. 
Uh, you can also find our podcast pages on Twitter and Facebook at Mental Health Quest Podcast. Yay! At MHQ Podcast with a capital M-H-Q. P. MHQ. Yes. So let's get into it. Our, our episode today is about PTSD, which um, is something that all of us have worked with. But uh, Dr. Scarlett, I think you, you uh, specifically have worked with this a lot. Um, so we just wanted to go over, usually what we do first is kind of go over what, what the definition of PTSD is, like what you see in your clients, not necessarily the DSM definition, but kind of how you would describe it to someone um, you know, uh, one of your clients, basically. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, first of all, I do want to mention that just because someone experienced trauma doesn't mean that they have PTSD, right? That's something that a lot of people might not know. And the other thing I wanted to mention is that PTSD is not limited only to combat-like situations. Mm-hmm. And so to this day, I've still had people say, Um, Oh, how could I possibly have PTSD? I've never been in combat. I'm not a veteran. I'm not a service member. Um, PTSD is something that can affect anybody. So in terms of um, common examples, it might be after somebody experiences, let's say, sexual assault or sudden illness, a sudden loss of a loved one. Um, having a near-death experience, uh, maybe being uh, assaulted, mugged, you know, etc. Being in abusive relationships can also lead to trauma and um, something we're just more recently starting to learn about is the impact of childhood emotional uh, abuse and neglect and abandonment, right? Because I think a lot of people might logically understand how childhood sexual abuse or childhood physical abuse can lead to PTSD, but not a lot of people understand that neglect can too, neglect and abandonment. And so now I'll give you an example. I've had many clients with what we're now starting to refer to as developmental trauma, where, Mm. um, for example, parents got divorced early, Um, mom might've been either emotionally unavailable because she started dating or maybe in some cases got sick, in some cases died. Dad either started abusing substances or started dating. And in many cases, um, the ones I'm referring to where the child developed, uh, PTSD, the parents would do something called parentify the child. So that's mm-hmm. where the parents might rely on the child to be their therapist. So the mm-hmm. child essentially had no secure childhood. Now, the child's life was not necessarily in danger here, but their emotional mm-hmm. well-being was never taken care of. And so in terms of the symptoms that I might see in a lot of people, it might be um, lots and lots of anxiety, especially when it comes to fears of abandonment people who are terrified that people are judging them, which might on the surface look like social anxiety, but it's not. Mm -hmm. It's coming from trauma. Panic attacks, uh, which again might on the surface look like a panic disorder, but it's not. It might be unprocessed trauma. Mm -hmm. Um, And then of course, uh, especially for people who've been through um, some kind of a really scary life-threatening event, we see nightmares, flashbacks, Um, In just about all cases of trauma, one of the leading risk factors for continued trauma symptoms is avoidance. Mm -hmm. 
So mm-hmm. the more people avoid <clears throat> talking about their traumatic experiences, processing their trauma, um, and um, understanding what's happening to them, the longer this condition lasts. Yeah, that's definitely been my experiences. Um, I haven't worked with <clears throat> many veterans but I have worked with a lot of kids, a lot of teens and a lot of, you know, adults that just have that, that childhood trauma that definitely, um, you know, uh, presents as, like you said, almost like anxiety or just, they don't just trust people or overachieving Mm -hmm. is something that I definitely Mm -hmm. see as well. Um, that perfectionism, um, they're afraid to make mistakes, but yeah, that's mostly what I've seen actually is from, you know, that, that childhood type of emotional trauma. And again, it doesn't have to be physical. Um, it could be emotional trauma and neglect. I, I am seeing that differently now. I honestly, I've, I've heard about that before, but only in the vaguest of senses. And I never really thought about those clients of mine that had those kind of, um, I guess you would say adverse childhood relationships that they weren't physically or sexually abusive, but they were parentified, mm-hmm. you know, that's the, that's the SAT word of the day. Um, Parentification. Yeah. And I'm, I'm now I'm realizing that maybe a bit more of my patients that I've seen that maybe they didn't, you know, it wasn't as obvious uh, that PTSD was, it was there. Now I'm thinking back like, Oh, okay. There definitely might've been something there, you know, the issues with the family dynamics and, you know, the kind of the attachment issues that come from it, from having that emotional needs not being met, it affects their ability to form relationships in the future. And that they might then avoid those kind of close emotional attachments because that's triggering of their relationship with their parents. But most people nowadays would see that as just, oh, they're not like feeling comfortable in relationships or commitment issues, but it's not. It's it's mm-hmm. that they are they act based off of what they've seen and that's how all humans are. And yeah. if the only experience you've had with close relationships with other humans has been where they just, you know, use you for their own comfort, but don't give you any comfort in return, then it's quite understandable that you might avoid close human interactions. Yeah. And that's what uh, the other thing too is, is that not only are my clients parentified, but they also become the person who's protecting their siblings. Mm-hmm. Um, they're in charge of protecting their siblings and keeping them safe. And, you know, when the parents aren't making great healthy decisions, they're the ones standing up for the rest of their siblings because they can take it. Um, and then that kind of leads to a, a self-sacrificing type of um, attitude towards life, which then leads to burnout um, pretty quickly. But they're, you know, again, you know, these people are amazing. They're regular people, you know, um, it's just that they haven't processed yet, you know, what's healthy, what's not, you know, um, what I always say, like people get upset. They're like, Oh, I never realized that I'm, you know, and they get mad at themselves for not being able to realize it. And I'm like, no, this is, this is all you knew. Like you didn't have any other examples of what this is supposed to look like, but you're here now. And you're working on it and it's going to, it can only get better from here because you're learning, you're learning and you're changing yourself. Right. Um, you know, Benjamin, you had mentioned an actual word that I know <laughs> that uh, society has actually like taken, taken it for itself triggers 
mm-hmm. um, that actually is a PTSD like word. <laughs> like uh, it's a something us therapists use, right? Um, I know a lot of people use it as jokes now. Oh, triggered much or like, you know, things like that. Uh, I tend not to use it in that colloquial way because um, it is uh, very important for people to understand their triggers when it comes to PTSD. Dr. Scarlett, have you kind of experienced that too? I've seen clients who report exactly that, how um, how invalidating it is mm-hmm. when they hear words that are related to mental health applied in a joking way, right? Mm-hmm. Like we hear things like, oh, I'm so OCD about this or like, yeah, like I got so triggered by this, like, you know, piece of paper in the trash or whatever, uh, when that's not what people are meaning to say. And so um, for people who are going through trauma, it, yeah, it feels extremely invalidating. And then I've had Numerous clients tell me that they have a difficult time using some of these words for themselves when they're appropriately applied uh, because Mm -hmm. of how I think some people are inappropriately using these terms. Yeah. I think a a big part of, you know, what comes from that is that that creates more stigma of the mental health issues of trauma. And, you know, it's ironic that that happens because now, especially in in modern day where mental health and trauma are being talked about more often, that like trauma-informed care is is becoming more widespread. But at the same time, society as a whole actually tends to stigmatize it just as much, and if Mm. not more, and which is really sad, considering that we all, literally the entire planet, just went through a mass trauma. Uh, mm-hmm. in the form of, you know, the capital P word that we're not going to say, because, you know, Mm-mm. we no can more. talk about Bruno, but we don't talk about the P word. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it's it's something that is very frustrating when you work with clients who are going through this and who are trying to kind of create their own lives and not just mm-hmm. be defined by their trauma. Uh, But then society and the news and TV shows and everything have been still kind of using those colloquial words or using it in those contexts. Um, Mm -hmm. It can make it very difficult for clients to fully take that on and work through it because to because in the meaning of the word, like we can tell them the therapeutic meaning of the word trigger, Mm -hmm. but the real world meaning of the word trigger is something different now and the connotation is different and makes it very difficult. Yeah. And, and listeners, we are not trying to make you feel guilty for using the word trigger (laughs) or anything like that. You know, it's just, if you have somebody around you that, you know, um, maybe going through something like this, this is just something to be aware of. Um, You know, changing your language is one way that you can help support somebody who's around you, you know, in a very subtle, but very helpful way, you know, not using the word trigger, not, you know, using, you know, oh, I'm so OCD and things like that. Um, Language does matter. And so this is one way that you can help, you know, support somebody who may be going through a really rough time. Um, So it's just something to keep in mind um, when you're, when you're talking to people, when you're dealing with your family, your friends, you know, that, that this is a way you can actually be really easily be supportive 
uh, of the people around you. So we, I didn't want you all to feel guilty about using, you know, you know, words and stuff like that. That's just kind of how society goes. But um, now you know, um, and you can use it. So I just wanted to make sure we didn't. <laughs> we think about it all the time because we're therapists, yeah. right? Like that's just our job, right? But uh, wanted to make sure you all didn't feel guilty or anything like that. Um, and so another thing I wanted to ask you, Dr. Scarlett, is um, how much you actually, when it comes to PTSD, um, how much substance use and abuse might, um, you know, kind of coexist with that, um, or we call it co-occur with PTSD? Yeah, it's, um, I'm glad you brought this up. It's actually very common, and it's one of the avoidance mechanisms that maintains PTSD. And sometimes it's pretty apparent, right? When somebody is using illicit substances or alcohol, it's pretty apparent. But sometimes it's a little bit more, um, I guess, covert, if you will, like the person might not even realize it themselves, where they might be over relying on prescription medication, not necessarily abusing prescription medication, but over relying on prescription medication, or over the counter medication. For a lot of people with trauma, headaches, chronic headaches, stomach aches, uh, back pain, um, these are really common. Um, in many cases, fibromyalgia and other autoimmune disorders are more likely to occur in people with trauma. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when we're going through a lot of pain, we might understandably, you know, take over the counter medications. We all do. I do. Right. Mm -hmm. And, but I think sometimes we might not realize how many co-occurring disorders, including chronic illness disorders can stem from trauma. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I'm saying this to destigmatize this uh, experience, not to put blame on anyone, but actually more to hopefully provide a potential explanation for some people for whom that might have been the case. Right. Because I know there's there's some um, clients out there that have, you know, kind of that chronic pain and things like that. And the doctors don't take it seriously. Right. They're just like, oh, you know, we can't find anything. So you must be making it up. And it's like, no, actually, this is my experience. Can you please help me? Right. And I'm glad you brought that up because that happens to so many people, right? Mm -hmm. If people are already experiencing trauma, which by the way, for a number of people, trauma starts before we're born, Mm -hmm. right? For so many people, trauma is intergenerational, especially for indigenous individuals, black individuals, Jewish individuals. But, but honestly, it's, quite global, isn't it? That mm-hmm. for so many of us, we're born with the trauma of our ancestors in our DNA already. And then if we're not provided with adequate support or exposed to some of the horrific horrors that many of us have been exposed to, it's understandable that our body will react, right? Mm-hmm. And if we're not getting adequate support and we're chronically in fight or flight mode, our immune system might be affected. And yes. so, of course, we might uh, develop certain illnesses that might not be visible traditionally to medical providers who might test for kind of very binary, are you living or dying immediately? 
mm-hmm. right. uh, kind of questions. Uh, but that doesn't make the person's experience any less valid. And for right. any of you out there, if you suffer from chronic pain or chronic illness, please know your experience is valid. I see you. Your experiences are true. And if you've had a bad experience with a doctor not believing you, that's on them. That is not on you. Correct. It's, it is an unfortunate thing that a lot of times, because, you know, one of the goals of our podcast was to help people to learn how to find mental health services because... It's something that most people don't know how to do. And, you know, the first point of contact for most people into the mental health system is through their primary care physician. Mm-hmm. And it, it can be actually in a way traumatizing to for someone who's going to their primary care physician for a chronic health issue that is probably due to trauma that they're just not aware of the trauma. But mm-hmm. to basically be told by the doctor, oh, I'm going to refer you to a psychologist or to a therapist because it's all in your head. Well, great. You're getting to see the mental health professional that you needed, but the yeah, way but... that you're being sent there or being referred there is now being stigmatized. Is You're right. being told you're crazy because we can't see it on our tests, so it must not exist. Mm-hmm. And there's so much the human body, not just the human mind, but the human body, there's so much that can that happens that does not show up on medical tests. You know, medical science is not 100% yet. So, you know, it's really important for a lot of people to understand the medical doctors, unfortunately, don't know all the answers, which is mm-hmm. sad because we always like to believe that doctors know everything. <laughs> can figure it out. Uh, that's yeah. why they should have become psychologists. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, but if you are being referred to a mental health professional from a doctor who's saying, you know, this pain is all in your head. I hope you can take this new meaning and, and create a new story out of it instead of it being, oh, I'm crazy. It's, okay, I'm searching for answers in a different place. And I think that's important. Yeah, and we actually have a word for that in psychology. It's psychosomatic, right? So mm-hmm. it's like the, and and this is what I tell people all the time too. Like, I don't understand how we don't have this, this uh, understanding that, the brain controls everything. Mm-hmm. It controls your breathing. It controls your muscles. It controls all of your bodily functions. So if that's not doing well, of course, other things are not going to go well. Right. So it's just like, to me, it's just like the most simple, like, um, conversation. Cause you don't have a brain. You don't have anything like you no, muscles aren't going to work. You're not going to be breathing. Your heart's not going to be, you know, all those things. And if it's feeling sick, then, you know, obviously we've got to try and treat it so that the rest can also follow, right? The rest can also get better. It just doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And the thing about physical and psychological pain is that they're experienced the same way in the same area of our brain, in the anterior cingular cortex, right? Like we experience distress and pain in the same area, the same activation, whether, you know, that 200-year-old phrase, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's BS. It's not true. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) In fact, the words hurt quite a lot. Yes, words do hurt a lot. And words actually can have a more long-lasting effect if we either know or perceive the words uh, to be intentional, intentionally hurtful, that, uh, that hurt will stay longer. And so much so that when people are struggling with either emotional or physical pain, 
And when they are struggling with emotional support, when they're not getting validated, when people tell them to quote unquote, just get over it, right? Mm -hmm. The, the amount of that uh, emotional pain that people are going through can, again, create physical activation in the pain centers of our brain, can make us literally sick in that our immune system will start malfunctioning. We might be more likely to uh, get a cold or other illnesses. It might make us sick to our stomach, right? Mm -hmm. So it might make us nauseated or it might make us throw up. And what's really interesting is that for a lot of people who are struggling with emotional distress, taking Tylenol can reduce that emotional distress. I'm not saying it to tell people to take Tylenol. That is not at all mm -hmm. what I'm recommending. What I'm saying is, is that your pain is real, as real mm -hmm. as a physical headache or stomach ache or, or back pain. And what we find in research studies is that what helps more than anything is meaningful social support. So is it okay if I mention a research study? Yes. Go, you go ahead. So yeah. There was a research study done, I think about 10 years ago now, where uh, participants were brought into the MRI and they were uh, told that you will see different signals on the screen and when you see certain pictures, you will get a mild electric shock. So this was a very like mild to moderate pain, kind of like getting a shot, right? Like getting mm -hmm. a shot in your shoulder. So mm -hmm. it, it's startling, it's uncomfortable, but it passes really quickly. There were three conditions. So some of the women were simply told, you will see the signal, you will get the shock. In the second condition, the the participants who were, again, I, I believe they were all women, the women were told, you will also have a support person. So they had a research assistant or a nurse hold their hand. So a very compassionate person supporting them through this experience. In the third condition, it was a compassionate family member that would come in with that person and hold their hand during the experiment. And what was really interesting, it was the same shock, right? It was controlled. So we know it's the same shock that was administered to all participants. But both verbally reported pain rates and uh, the pain activation levels in as picked up by the MRI reduced in the second condition where the nurse or the research assistant held their hand. These were significant reductions and, sig and reduced way more when it was a loved one holding their hand, suggesting that being there for somebody, whether it's creating emotional space for them, holding their hand physically or emotionally, can help the person to feel better on every level. And that is why people with chronic pain will report that their pain levels lower when they're being supported by loved ones. This is not uh, this is not just a psychological effect, which that's important enough. That is also a physiological effect. And so, by receiving the kind of support that you need, you're getting that kind of reduction in your body's overall pain activation. And I find it fascinating how important it is. That's so exciting. I love research. It's like one of my like things that I've always wanted to do. And I'm like, no, literally, when we're talking about like statistically significant, it has to be a huge difference um, in a research paper. You can't just say, oh, it's significant. You have to like report it and be like, oh, it's not that significant. No, when we say it's statistically significant, there is a huge difference. There is no question that there was a difference between those three 
um, you know, different groups. Um, and again, that's just science. That's just, you know, literally numbers telling you this is what's happening. You can't, you know, argue it, you know? And it's so amazing that, you know, it's not just that people are saying, oh yeah, your your pain levels are going down. You can actually see the the screen from the MRI. Yeah. And, you know, that that's one, one of the most amazing things about, you know, those kind of exams and those kind of tests and research studies that people who maybe they don't understand what the words mean, <laughs> you know, re- reading research papers is difficult, but oh, yeah, you see is. the image, you see the, you know, the lighting, you know, up of the brain of the pain on the first group. Okay. Clearly something's happening there, but then you go to the th- second and third group and you see it's not lighting up the same way. Well, okay. That's visual proof. And with, right. with people with trauma, you know, with, with PTSD, there is that activation in the brain when triggers are occurring, when certain situations are occurring, or when they are experiencing physical discomfort or pain. The brain is basically acting, you know, lighting up in the same way as if it was, you know, like you got punched in the stomach or something like that, or if you got shot again for those people who had experienced those kind of physical traumas, people with the more emotional traumas still have the same response going on in the brain. And it honestly, it could be a word. It could be a smell. It could be a certain touch sensation, somebody, you know, touching, you know, a certain part of your body. It could be just somebody standing behind you, like situational. Or an emotion. And emotion sometimes can trigger a trauma response too. Right. And so, you know, just feeling that emotion, even though it's different from the situation you're in, just feeling that emotion will immediately trigger that fight or flight response. And that's where you get anxiety attacks and panic attacks and things like that, because your body is just like, oh, crap, we're in danger. We need to get out of here. You know, let's go. And, And that's what my my clients they just say it's so scary that it, it that it's so automatic, it's so quick, it's so intense. And that's obviously why we do a lot of work with, you know, identifying what it is first, you know, and being like, oh, yeah, that's a trauma response. Like, it's not that you're doing anything wrong. It's not that you did anything wrong. It's not that you are tr- doing this to yourself or choosing to do this or whatever, you know, kind of stuff goes through your head. It's this is an evolutionary response to danger. Like it's just it. That's how us humans have survived for so long. And it's going into overdrive because of something that you've experienced in the past. Right. Um, And so really validating that, that, you know, the body is responding as well. It's not just your mind, your entire system is responding in that fight or flight response. I think it's really uh, interesting that you said fight or flight response um, because I think that's something that's really, because fight or flight responses are oftentimes also coming up with flashbacks. Um, And I think that's Mm -hmm. the next, you know, big PTSD word that we should discuss is what is a flashback and how do they affect us so strongly? You know, how does it, create that fight or flight response in us uh how do they come up and what does it mean to have a flashback is it only like 
visual or like can there be other types of flashbacks too yeah i'm glad you brought that up and so many people if they know what the word flashback is that's exactly what they're thinking of they're thinking it's a visual flashback where people replay a movie of what happened to them which happens also that's very common mm -hmm. but something else that happens to a lot of trauma survivors is an emotional and physiological flashback Right, so physiological flashback is where our body will feel as if we're back in that trauma, whether it's in combat zone where we might drop to the ground or freeze, or you know, in case of sexual assault survivors, for example, where we might tense or feel pain in areas of our body where we felt pain when the trauma was happening. And so for a lot of people, when they're in an emotional or physical flashback, it might be very hard for them to realize what's happening if that movie is not playing, right? They just might notice something seemingly small. Like I'll give you an example. Um, one of my clients was a survivor of severe domestic violence, is now in a very healthy, happy relationship. And this person and their partner went to a football game. And... Uh, my client's partner was very into the game, was excited, and at one point was upset about a call that was made, right? Like a ref call. It was like, come on, you know, and just kind of mm -hmm. yelled. And my client flinched and hid. Mm -hmm. And so my client was not replaying the visual images of what happened to her in the past, but the physiological reaction that happened and the emotion of absolute terror, mm -hmm. that was a flashback too. And so I let my clients know that in situations like it, we might not have a visual flashback, we might have an emotional or physical flashback, but even naming it, right? Like I'm having a flashback, this is a trauma reaction. Those could be the first steps. And then after that, practicing grounding, right? Where am I? What's today's date? What's happening around me? Am I physically safe right now in this very second, right? If not, I need to get to safety, of course. But if I am physically safe, but I don't feel safe, then what can I do, right? And then we'll talk about like essentially grounding exercises, breathing exercises, et cetera. And it, it's intense. It's not, uh, that's what I want people to understand. It's, it's not like it's like, a, oh, you just kind of feel it's like all consuming your body is responding to this trauma, um, especially if you don't know what's going on um, or you haven't processed that trauma at all. It's an all consuming thing. Um, it can, and it can feel really overwhelming for people. And I think it's, it's a kind of a similar, I guess it could be explained as a type of muscle memory. You know, your body is has your body has memory of its own. It's not memory is not just the you know encoding in our brain of recall of words and and themes and topics like you know when we're studying for a test. But there's also the physical memory. Our body is remembering certain situation and emotions and stimuli, and that's kind of what's coming up with these uh, emotional and physiological flashbacks. It's a memory of the feeling. It's it can be very disconcerting for people to have those responses when the triggers are not so obvious, mm -hmm. like they're out in public or they're out in a, you know, what would be a safe place, but maybe some small thing happened 
that then their body reacted in that flashback. And they can be very confused as to why am I having this experience? Like it, what, what does that have to do? And I had a client there, the body would respond through vomiting. Um, But the the situation was not actually really that similar to the trauma. Only in the slightest sense, in the you know, in the slightest smallest trigger, can still create this experience in the body. Mm -hmm. Yep, the body just reacts to protect you. That's what it's doing. It's trying to protect you. It's like, oh, this is familiar. I know what to do with this. Uh, You know, and then reacts. You know, and that's why understanding what's going on helps you kind of combat that because it's like, oh, no, I'm not in danger. I'm, you know, you kind of have to use that my, uh, <laughs> uh, your animal brain versus your thinking brain, right? Um, your instinct brain versus your, your thinking brain. You can use the thinking brain to kind of be like, okay, no, we need to separate these two things. They're no longer a danger. Um, and I, 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 I definitely want to get to like, treatments because you know obviously dr scarlett you have a very specific treatment that you love to do so uh i figured uh as long as everybody's okay i think we covered a lot of symptoms in the um in that part um i did want to you know just briefly talk about what different types of ptsd there are um you know i definitely myself you know there's ptsd and then there's um CPTSD has actually come out recently. This is a more recent thing that I haven't been able to do a lot of research on yet, um, but it's complex um, post-traumatic stress disorder. Dr. Scarlett, do you have anything, you know, any information about that? Sure. Um, I, when it comes to, I, I don't like this definition, but that's how it's been described as quote unquote simple PTSD it usually comes from one event. So for example, if somebody was uh, in a horrific car accident and it's one event, right? If somebody was um, sexually assaulted, as horrific as that is, right? uh, On one uh, instance, then typically we would say that's PTSD. Complex PTSD has to do with series of multiple traumatic experiences often happening over a period of time. Um, A lot of times it starts since childhood, but it doesn't have to. Um, A lot of times the individual might not realize that they're suffering until their adulthood, for example. So they might not come in after they've been in, let's say, series of abusive relationships or after they've deployed, you know, to uh, a particular military deployment but as we start processing, it turns out that there have been all of these childhood traumas that were unaddressed, for example. So complex PTSD typically has to do with multiple traumatic experiences where the individual really struggled with having emotional support they needed, um, where they were either abused or neglected or not given the support they needed to deal with a particular issue, including bullying. It's funny being in the field for for 12 years. I never thought I'd be like, oh, this is a new thing. Like, but it's just a new category, right? For us to treat it better. Yes. Right. It's a new category. And I'm hoping in the new DSM, we'll see both PTSD and CPTSD. And I'm also really hoping that we'll see developmental trauma 
because the way PTSD is said to exist now, which is why so many medical professionals miss it, is that it says that it requires a life-threatening event to the individual or for them to witness something horrific, right, happening to somebody else. Uh, but uh, we know that abandonment and emotional abuse and neglect also counts as traumatic. And so for that reason, I'm really hoping we'll see developmental trauma as another subtype of trauma disorders. I think it's actually, you know, to me, you know, the developmental trauma, you know, you're talking about abandonment and neglect. If you think about it evolutionarily, that is life-threatening, in our evolutionary past, if we, you know, when we were you know, first hunter-gatherers and just coming out of the caves and whatnot, if we were abandoned or neglected by our society or by our family, yeah, we would die. You know, mm-hmm. the lions and tigers and bears, oh my, would get us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the response, our and our brains respond to these kind of current everyday situations the same way, the exact same way that it would back in our evolutionary past when we were simple cavemen. And mm-hmm. so the fact of the matter is that abandonment, neglect, social rejection, that's why those things are so f- affecting us so strongly because our brains are like, oh, shoot, I have to go now into the wilderness all alone. What? Like, that is life-threatening to our brain, to our emotional brain, which is still the same as it was however many like you know thousands and millions of years ago that we evolved i'm really bad at math i'm pretty i'm not sure if a million was correct maybe yeah. yes million yeah. no? uh, i don't I think, know yeah, i think it's hundreds of thousands hundreds of thousands i looked it up actually recently um so the other thing too that that i think is a newer um idea in um trauma is that intergenerational trauma um i believe it's it's called epigenetics right um, I think that's the word that that we use for it. But um, if you watched uh, Encanto at all, listeners, that was a perfect example of what intergenerational trauma can do to an entire family, not just to the grandmother who experienced the trauma, but to her kids and then grandkids, right? Um, so we're actually like doing a lot more research now, uh, Dr. Scarlett, you might be more up on it than I am, but that there's actually like genetic things that are passed down to your children and your children's children from a, you know, um, really traumatic event. Um, and your body will react like it has PTSD, right, type symptoms because of that trauma. Um, and it, it's just super interesting to me too. Like that, that's just another thing to say, like, this isn't just in your head. This is like, it affects your genetics, you know? Absolutely. We know that, for example, for not just children, but grandchildren of Holocaust survivors, there are DNA, structural DNA changes that will cause the individual to react a certain way to certain stimuli. Right. And also to be more prone to uh, developing PTSD, anxiety, depression, etc. And so it, it's no joke. It's not it's not in your head, listeners. It's it's literally written in your DNA. <laughs> you know, that's what we're that's what we're finding out. As Dumbledore said, just because it's in your head doesn't mean it's not real. 
Right, exactly. You know, right. your head, your as you said earlier, Charlene, your brain controls everything. So everything. yeah, it's in your head, in fact, makes it the most real. Exactly. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. Yeah. Um, and, and that's it when we talk about invisible disabilities, right? Like that's, that's what we're talking about, right? Is, is that just because you can't see it doesn't mean that it doesn't affect the person just as much. So I wanted to kind of go through treatments. Like I wanted to go through like a couple of like regular old treatments. And then obviously we want to get into some superhero therapy uh, as it applies to PTSD. Um, so there are multiple treatments um, when it comes to, to PTSD. Um, you have uh, a big one is eye movement, desensitization and reprocessing. It's called EMDR but I know we use all sorts of acronyms. So I wanted to make sure I said what it actually was. Um, that's where you're unpairing basically um, the, the trigger from the response, right? So um, whatever the, the actual trigger is, whether it's a smell, a word, you know, whatever, you try and pair that with something more calming instead of um, the actual like physiological fight or flight response. I'm not, I'm not trained in it. I think it sounds awesome. That would be something that I'd be really, really interested in, in uh, uh, learning about, but it is, as far as I'm aware, one of the more foremost um, kind of treatments. Cause we find that again, if you think, you know, for the psychologists out there, if you think of classical conditioning, like we've got to untrain that pairing, you know, between the trauma and the trigger, right? And then biofeedback, I think, is is another kind of one that's like EMDR. You're actually watching how your brain's responding, you know, when it comes to triggers and things like that. And so you're learning how to calm down in that situation. Obviously, a lot more complicated than that. Not trained in biofeedback either, but um, definitely interesting. And then I'm going to leave ACT and superhero therapy up to Dr. Scarlett here. <laughs> Thanks. Um, and I actually do all of those modalities that you've talked about. Like I'm trained in EMDR, biofeedback, oh, awesome. ACT, and, um, and I do superhero therapy. And superhero therapy can be a standalone treatment, but I actually often prefer to use it and recommend that people use it as a tool that's incorporated into uh, a particular evidence-based treatment like acceptance and commitment therapy, EMDR, cognitive processing therapy, right? Prolonged exposure. Some of these are gold standard treatments for PTSD. Um, and, um, and of course, acceptance and commitment therapy. Um, and so essentially, superhero therapy refers to incorporating elements of pop culture from movies, television shows, uh, books, and video games into um, evidence-based therapy to help people understand that what happened to them is an origin story, right? Mm -hmm. That the rest of their heroic journey is up to them, that people are not defined by their origin story. You're not what happened to you, but you can make choices into what you want to do next. Um, the idea would be to have uh, a client kind of playfully create their own treatment plan where they can um, maybe look up to a beloved hero or uh, maybe a game that they really like and design steps that they need to take in order to become their own version of a superhero in real life 
or to kind of make their life match their favorite video game, for example, or a favorite TV show uh, where they can take charge over what's happening. For example, by being a leader in their community, helping other people by maybe thinking how Batman or, um, or Storm or Wonder Woman would guide them, right? By thinking, what would T'Challa tell me to do, right? How would T'Challa tell me to support my community? And so the idea is to destigmatize mental health, right? Mental health experiences to help the person uh, destigmatize their origin story and to help them to feel more empowered based on their beloved fandom or their favorite games. I love it. So much fun. Y'all know I do role-playing game. It's it's the same, same basis, right? Um, you know, just, uh, practicing, you know, over and over again, this is, this is what you want your story to look like. You have control over it, right? That's the whole point is to, to kind of give that sense of control where there may not have been a feeling of a lot of control before um, because it's so innate and, you know, quick and things like that. I love it. So much fun. <laughs> Dr. Scarlett, you mentioned uh, when you were discussing about superhero therapy, you mentioned two other types of uh, evidence-based practices that go along with it, especially as it pertains to working with trauma. One was the ACT, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, and another one you said was Cognitive Processing Therapy. Could you explain a little bit about both of those? Sure. Cognitive Processing Therapy is a subtype of cognitive behavioral therapy, but specifically made for uh, PTSD. So in Cognitive Processing Therapy, the individual would be um, supported with um, changing their trauma narrative, right, through challenging beliefs. Uh, writing out and retelling their trauma narrative, which we know helps to reduce the activation in our body. Um, and um, cognitive processing therapy identifies some of the top uh, trauma themes that occur. For example, after a traumatic experience, our safety might be affected. We might not feel safe in other places. We might have difficulty trusting other people. We might have difficulty with control, right? We might want to be in control of all situations and feel uncomfortable if somebody else takes charge, for instance. Uh, we might have difficulty with our esteem, right? Self-esteem or esteem towards certain other people and emotional or physical intimacy. So in focusing on some of these themes, this trauma intervention can help people to change their um, kind of automatic thinking patterns, right? They're called stuck points. Um, and also to uh, change their trauma narrative to a more empowering one. Um, and then with acceptance and commitment therapy, the focus is on the willingness to sit with whatever happened anyway. So I, a lot of times people think acceptance means that we should be okay with what happened. And that's not the yeah, case. Definitely not. Acceptance yeah. is the willingness to sit with, let's say, the anger or the grief about the horrific tragedy that has occurred. Mm -hmm. um, and acceptance and commitment therapy is being used for, for example, individuals who were prejudiced against, right? Mm -hmm. We must never ever say the prejudice is okay because it's not. It's more mm -hmm. about accepting that prejudice does exist, right? And for the individual who was prejudiced against to uh, sit with the anger, the frustration, the unfair... Uh, you know, the unfairness of what happened to them. Um, so 
acceptance and commitment therapy is about mindful awareness of what we're going through, the willingness to explore our internal experiences, and then the ability to follow our core values, right? So that we are in line with the kind of person that we want to be, for example, through social justice and things like that. That's awesome. This is, this is one of the, again, one of the amazing things, like, I've done that the whole time, but there was no word for it. There wasn't a specific, like, you know, like, you know, act wasn't out yet, you know, <laughs> when I started. So it's like, it's really neat to like, have these, like, you know, this validating type of thing. Oh, okay. That's a good thing <laughs> that I do. You know, I help, help my clients just kind of, you know, again, it's not that it, it's, you know, doesn't stink or that it was really traumatic. It's that, you know, it happened and we've got a, this is reality and we have to figure out how we're going to cope um, and how we're going to thrive. That's, that's the whole point. Right. And I, you're, you had mentioned too, like that, that control uh, part where like, sometimes if, you know, if you have trauma, you might have some control stuff going on. It actually, I specifically have had helped someone in uh, my role-playing game therapy by having them play someone who has to depend on others for healing. So when they get attacked or whatever, they're super squishy. Uh, so they're a super squishy, uh, um, you know, uh, class. And so when they get hit, they get hit hard and they go down hard. Right. And so that person actually has to depend on other people to heal them in the game. And it was something that was pointed out, you know, I process. The, the games usually individually it was definitely pointed pointed out in the 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 individual session that oh my god I have to do that <laughs> and they were like I don't want to do that I don't want to practice that oh my gosh you know and obviously they were you know they were kidding but they were like we didn't even realize that that was something that was gonna come out of it but like with the superhero therapy it definitely can help direct you and figure out oh oh I am reacting you know, in a way like that. And here's how I can practice it, practice it by being the superhero, practice it by being, you know, my D and D character and working through it. It's definitely, it's definitely a lot of fun, but a lot of, a lot of good work. Yeah, I, I agree. It's the, these kind of practices, the CPT, the acceptance commitment therapy, EMDR, all of it is, is so needed. Um, and we thank you so much, Dr. Scarlett, for coming on to teach us all about it. In our, We will have um, you know, a future series. After we're done talking about specific diagnosis, we're going to talk about specific therapies. And so we would love to have you come on again, Dr. Scarlett, for, to talk about one and or more of those therapies. <laughs> um, we, but um, to all of our listeners, you know, if you believe that you have been through some kind of trauma if you have been through some kind of trauma to accept is not to forgive accept is to acknowledge and Mm -hmm. once you can acknowledge it then you can work make it work for you um Mm -hmm. i don't like to say move past because that implies that you're avoiding it no we're not going to move past we're going to make it work for you um and so Thank you so much, Dr. Scarlett, for teaching us all about how to make our trauma work for us. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate you all. Yay! 
Um, so Dr. Scarlett, where can we find you on the interwebs, on the internet? Where can we find you? Um, I am, uh, people can search for me by name. So Janina Scarlett, uh, my website is superhero-therapy.com. On Twitter, I'm at Shadow Quill, Quill like a feather. And on Instagram, I am at Dr. Janina Scarlett Official. Nice. All right. So you can find me, Charlene. You can find me on Nat20 uh, Therapy, True Form Unseen on TikTok. Uh, I'm building a website. That's exciting. Um, and Benjamin, where can we find you? As of right now, uh, you can find me through the Mental Health Quest podcast uh, social media on Facebook and Twitter or emailing us at mentalhealthquest1 at gmail.com. I am also in the process of starting another podcast uh, called My Hero Therapy, which is to talk about how to learn how to be a hero in real life from the lessons of the My Hero Academia anime. And so you can find me there at My Hero Therapy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Scarlett. This is so much fun to, to, I got to learn stuff too. I always like that. I get to learn new things. We really appreciate you coming on and, um, you know, uh, love all of the information. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you all. Have a wonderful day. Thank you, you too. too. Bye. Bye. Please take care of yourselves and make today amazing. Mm-hmm.